Welcome to the Black Theatre History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the people, the plays, and the rich stories of the American theatre's African-American history makers. I'm KV Sane. Dominique Moroso is an American playwright and actor from Detroit, Michigan. Three of her plays are part of a cycle called The Detroit Projects, and they include Paradise Blue, Detroit 67, and Skeleton Crew. Since the 2015-2016 season, Dominique has consistently made the list of the top playwrights produced in America. In the end of April this year, Dominique made time to talk with me just hours before the first preview of her play Paradise Blue at Signature Theatre in New York. In what was intended as a first in a three-part Detroit series for the podcast, we talked about her Detroit trilogy, her influences and intentions as a playwright, and the contemporary realities of Jim Crow Theatre. If you follow Dominique on any kind of social media, you'll understand what I mean when I say it was some hashtag freedom truth for real. In the embarrassingly many months since then, Dominique has stayed in the news. Her musical, Ain't Too Proud, successfully ran in California and announced a Broadway opening at the Imperial Theater in March 2019. She's bounced back and forth consistently, writing for both the stage and the screen. And the MacArthur folks publicly recognized what we already knew. Dominique is a genius. Here are some excerpts from our conversation in New York this spring. Um, I want to talk about the plays that are largely focused, the Detroit plays, as people call them. But I want to always start with who people are, who their influences are, where they come from, whose shoulders they stand on. So your origins are as an actress. That's right. Where did, with whom did you study? How did you get to here as a playwright? Well, I first got introduced to acting when I was in elementary school. You know, right. um, that was a teacher, Miss Hardiman, second grade. I've written about her in the New York Times. Um, and then there was a, you know, and then I had a sixth grade teacher, Miss Wiley, who was also really big on showing, teaching us about drama and plays. We read Shakespeare. We wrote raps to Hamlet when I was growing up, you know, because of that teacher and how, and how exciting she made um, mm-hmm. reading plays and reading literature. And then, um, and so, and then I was in plays when I was in sixth grade. And then high school, I had another teacher, Marilyn McCormick. She recently, a couple of years ago, won the Tony for in education. All right. And um, it's because I, I've come from really great teachers mm-hmm. who really inspired my um, theater. And my mother, who took me to see plays. My mother's also a teacher, so she took me to see a lot of plays growing up. I I was, you know, involved in um, dance when I was a little girl. My aunt had a dance company. So I've been sort of in and around theater for a long time. Um, and I think the journey from being an actress, I went, to, uh, I went to the University of Michigan to study acting. Mm-hmm. And while I was at Michigan, the playwright came about. I've always been a writer. I always wrote poetry. Okay. I always wrote short stories. Um, but when I was in theater and I wasn't getting the kind of work I wanted as an actress in my department and I didn't feel like we were studying the kind of writers that I wanted mm-hmm. to be reading about, um, which were writers that reflected my cultural background as well, um, I, I decided that it was time for me to write something for me and the other African-American women in my department, a play for all of us to be in. So that's sort of where I started. What was the first play? It was called. It was called the Blackness Blues. Time to change the tune. A sister's story. All right. And now. it was, uh, you know, if it sounds a lot like for color girls who have considered suicide with the rebels, you know, it is because I was very much um, that choreo poem was very much my entry point 
mm-hmm. into how to write plays. I, I was a poet. So my, mm-hmm. my play was a choreo poem. So Zaki's work makes perfect sense for Absolutely. you. Awesome. So a bunch of your plays end up being about Detroit. Yeah. Um, for a minute, they were just a trilogy. People yeah. do still refer to the Detroit trilogy in yeah. that way. Um, Detroit 67, I know, um, I remember reading somewhere that it was your father's story. What, what brought you to that tale? Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's my mother and father. It's my, it's, it's their era, I think. That's why I guess I call it my father's play because it is, um, it's not necessarily his story, although there are lots of elements of my dad in the play. Um, just in terms of like my father writes on the walls of our basement and mm-hmm. that play is a big deal. The, <laughs> yeah. the writing on the wall. Um, and the four pointed star in the basement of, of the Lancashire, um, that four pointed star is in my home basement right now. My mm-hmm. father drew that on our wall. So, uh, the very first couple of productions of Detroit 67, that was my father's star that they used. They had a picture of it nice, and they repainted it, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, and I, it's my memory of him and his friends and, so Lank and Sly really uh, kind of sound like my daddy and his friends gro- when I was growing up and remembering how they would interact. You know, my father's friends have all passed away. My okay. dad's the last remaining of his uh, original crew, if you will. Um, and so I feel like that play was also, as much as it was about me exploring my hometown, exploring police brutality and mm-hmm. um, and the uh, the the basically the, the ingredients of urban rebellion, it was also about me just giving my father's friends back. So, and then the second piece would have been Paradise Blue, correct? Yeah, that's the second one I wrote. Yeah, right. Um, at what point did you, was there a conscious decision that they would all physically be representing Detroit? How, how, did, how did that part happen? What was that commitment for you? What did that look like? Um, I started writing all three plays with the mentality that they were going to be a three-play cycle. Okay. I knew that I wanted to write. I just I remember when I got the idea. I was like, you know, I like the number three. At the time, I saw a lot of people. You know, Terrell had the brother sister mm-hmm. plays, and I was really inspired by that. And I thought, oh, people are doing. I was reading all August Wilson's, you know, ten play cycle, and I thought, okay, ten's a big number, but I like three though. <laughs> I like three, you know, and um, and I just thought about what he, what his plays meant for the people of Pittsburgh, and I really got excited and inspired to, to, to do that same thing for Detroit. So August was also a huge inspiration to that. But also Pearl Clegg was mm. a really big inspiration for me in writing um, a, a play cycle because I was, as an actor, I was studying Pearl Clegg's work. Uh, we were reading all of her plays at this theater downtown, um, Seaport. Um, and, uh, and at that theater, I got sort of excited about the idea of like a author reading their work back to back mm-hmm. and you learn something about the author and you learn something about the people that they're writing about and um Pearl Clegg she's also from Detroit you know her father's a legend in Detroit and, I always think um, about her with Atlanta yeah I don't think about her as Detroit yeah she's in Atlanta but she's a yeah. she's a Detroit girl okay in fact funny enough because Paradise Blue this play that is about to go up tonight is um part of it was inspired by an essay that Pearl Clegg wrote about called Mad at Miles. And I email with her sometimes because okay. I met her in Atlanta um, during Detroit 67. And she's been just always from a distance sending me lots of love on my work, you know. And um, she did recently. And I told her, oh, but you got to read this one because <laughs> this was inspired by you, you know. So anyway, so reading her work 
was a big influence um, also in me wanting to write a series of plays. Okay. So one of the things that really sticks out about all three plays is that they're all about, well, they're all about Detroit. But when we go deeper into that, they're all about the people who are trying to survive in a space that's being destroyed mm-hmm. um, or that's being threatened in some way. And I, I'm curious if you have a, an intention behind that or if that's the reality of the history of Detroit. Do you mean specifically just this island? What, which idea particularly? Just the idea that they're... You know, it's, it's interesting that you say August Wilson because yeah. a lot of people, you know, refer to you as a female August Wilson in some of those ways. And I, and I do I, think... I feel like they do that for all of us. <laughs> I, I, I can't even tell... I mean, I, you know, I'm always, in, always accepting of the honor, any honor. You know what I mean? I feel like they'd say that every black female playwright that writes with black rhythm, they go, it's like she's like no, August Wilson. No, I say that to say two things. One... <laughs> You you set out to write a series yeah. of pieces about a place, yeah. um, and and like him, your work comes from a place of poetry, yeah. and that poetry comes through the language and the dialogue and the rhythm of very realized, very real people who are not made up Absolutely. for a character, and Absolutely. so I think that some of that comes in that way. Yeah. I think that there's some truth to that. I, I'm sure it's humbling when people say it to you, but you should own that. Yeah, cool. Okay, <laughs> sure. I mean, I, 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 I do think that what I love about those writers that you mentioned are just that they are reflecting the people, their people of their time mm-hmm. and how they hear their people, you know, and um, and also that they are in many ways speaking for the people who um, are, I'm going to say the underdogs because I don't, I don't necessarily believe in that mentality, but, I, but the people who are underwritten. Yeah, whose voices are not present. That's right. And who are socially, um, just whose voices are not present in art, but also not present in in our conversations socially. You know, we're not paying attention to them enough. Right. Um, And so that's that's what I appreciate about those writers and anything that gets us all in that kind of conversation, I'm cool with, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But yeah, but back to your question, though. You were talking about... um, just the struggle of people. Yeah, like, well, know. and then also that the in the three plays that I'm thinking of, yeah. um, including Paradise Blue and Detroit 67 and um, Sunset Baby. Yeah. Um, they're all... Or Skeleton, Skeleton Crew. Skeleton Crew. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for I saying know. that. So, Sunset Baby no, is No, that's a different... That's not in Detroit. No. Um, Skeleton Crew, <laughs> which I've directed a reading of. Like, yeah. I know this play. Mm-hmm. Um, they all... Those those physical spaces, like, those, those the setting of the play is in a... a point where Detroit is under attack mm-hmm. or, or that part mm-hmm. of Detroit is under attack and I yeah. I'm just I'm curious about how that keeps coming up um, or or okay. if that's the reality of and you write what's real uh, or is that something that you've considered yeah you know I guess I'm I, well when I set out to write the cycle I wanted to look at three periods in time mm-hmm. that I guess I didn't think of it in that sense that Detroit's under attack, but in a way, I, you know, three time, three periods of time that turn our city around, you know? Yeah, I and mean, I it's destroyed in one, that's Black right. Bottom in the other, that's and I mean, right. like, literally, yeah. the plant's going to shut down that's in right. the third. So, I mean... And I guess I'm looking at it where, what I, I guess, and the way I was thinking of it was maybe um, looking at it on the brink of a significant change, which is... Mm. Which is what happens when you're under attack, right? Um, and so, yeah, and I think I, I'm always interested in the people who survive those attacks, if, 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 to, to use that language. Um, the people that, that 
survive those changes and, and build on top of it. You know, we look at Paradise Blue and we talk about what's going to happen with this community. I mean, no, no matter what we do, feel, and say in this play, mm-hmm. the reality is this community got bulldozed. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't change the facts of what happened in 1949 no matter what tone we end on in our play. Right. Um, but uh, I always say, yeah, they, 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 they lost that community, but then they spread out all over the city after that, right? So if you're looking at the end of 1949, that play, and you're like, oh, they got to get bulldozed. Like, <laughs> here we, they about to take over this whole city, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, same with 67. And he kind of, they, they kind of say something like that in Detroit 67. Like, we about to be, yep. it's about to be our city. Yep. And it was. And so I think in Skeleton Crew, it's looking at, oh, man, you know, this is our city that we are dealing with all these fragments and broken pieces and stuff that is a part of our city that right. we own. And now it's, and now it's sort of like everything else is turning its back on our city, you know? Um, and that there's all this rejection and, and, um, you know, I, I guess for lack of a better word, a judgment and, um, and lack of compassion and empathy for our city, mm. you know? Um, and so I think it's from that place of lack of empathy for the city where I started writing the project is what made me want to go into it. Okay. I'm really always curious about this from all writers, but. You are exceptionally politically active um, and socially active, I would say, in that way. Maybe those, those social issues are political, yeah. um, but I would say that you're more of a social warrior. Yeah. Um, what do you want your plays to do? I know that's a really big question, but... Yeah. I mean, I think at the core, I think every playwright will say the same thing, and I don't know how... We all maybe approach it differently or we take different roles in this action. Some of us may be more inactive around having this happen, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I think we all want the place to be, uh, to, to, to start a dialogue. I don't know one playwright that wouldn't be f- freaking thrilled to the hills, <laughs> you know, if everybody left their play, you know, in conversation and arguments and whatever, yeah. you know, and discussions and deep thinking. Like, I mean, that's what we all would want, you mm-hmm. know. So there's not one playwright I, I know that would not want that. So that's the first thing. I think we want people to be having these conversations forward moving, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that that conversation, those dialogues, as I think many of us think as well, is how you start to create change, social change, you know? Right. Um, because people aren't talking about stuff. They certainly aren't going to, you know, turn policies around for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you're not hearing from the people themselves, and you certainly aren't going to vote in their interest. And so I think it's that kind of thing that mm-hmm. makes me feel very socially active around you know, getting people in conversations with, with, with ideas and per, and perspectives that they aren't normally in conversation with. I celebrate that yeah. because that's what we need to do. Um, and I know that's one of the reasons why I do the work that I do is because those conversations do need to be brought to new audiences that are sometimes surprisingly shocked that these issues exist. Yeah. Um, and that makes me really want to ask, I didn't prepare this question, but it comes up a lot. What is your experience in doing these really rich and true and honest black plays in white spaces? Well, I'm glad you asked that. That That is actually part of, when you, when you ask me what do I want the plays to do, um, part of my activism as a theater artist has, be, has come around um, challenging theater mm-hmm. to uh, be more democratic and to be more um, socially, economically, you know, balanced. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not. 
And so, you know, my challenge to every theater that even hosts me as a writer, and I'll, I'll say it out loud to them, and I mean, you know, it will be received however. I think if you put me in your space at this point, you should know who you're bringing into your theater. Right. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm going to challenge and say, um, we, you know, no more Jim Crow theater. To me, that Jim Crow theater, for me, mm-hmm. looks like a bunch of black folks on stage and a bunch of white folks in the audience. I mean, that's been happening since the beginning of, you know, integration. Right. Right? That's been happening since before integration. That's been happening since since Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, and I think that it's that kind of... And, and, and many times when that's happened, it has been black folks entertaining and performing themselves for white audiences. Um, their pain and their pain being entertainment for mm-hmm. white audiences, you know? And so no more of that. Um, I think that we have to have a lot more balance in our audiences. And, that, and I think... I don't know who hears that and how they how they hear that. If they're not listening well, they might hear that as me, me wanting to get rid of white folks in the theater, and that's not. No, but it also it. isn't like, hey, we're bringing in one of Dominique's shows. Let's go tell the black people to come to the theater for this show. That's right. That you know, like when you leave and your cast leaves, that's right. That that theater goes right back to looking the way that it always has. That's right. Um, I'm saying, that and that's a national problem. That's a national problem. It's a national problem. And it is also in conservatory programs, there's a lot of, um, I have two big, I guess, battles right now that I'm fighting in theater. One is Jim Crow theater, like changing these audiences and really from the core, from having these marketing departments change who they're hiring mm-hmm. to work on these shows, you know. Um, and because I also I think that they don't, what is problematic is when you don't study a community's um, buying and spending habits and you think you know how to get them to come to your or you go well, I don't know how they're going to come to our show they just don't have the money right? and it's like you don't even know anything about how they spend their money to say something like that or what the culture values or what, what their values are you yeah. absolutely have or, no or where to find the people in places where they honestly and earnestly exist I feel very passionately about yeah, this yeah absolutely <laughs> they're passionate about it as well we probably could go on but and, and I think it's absurd for instance to have something on like Tyler Perry, who creates, you know, has a humongous following, that he and his model is not even a part of the conversation that you're having about getting those audiences out there. I don't care what you think of his art. We're not even going to debate that. No, but he fills amphitheaters. He fills amphitheaters, and people are sitting in these theaters in these conversations saying, like, well, black people don't come to the theater. When we know that's not true. The fact that that whatever he's doing is not even being studied or legitimized is ridiculous to me. That's ridiculous to me. And again, it doesn't have anything to do with how you feel about his art. We're not talking art. I'm talking about commerce. I'm talking about the butt seat putting right. seats. And we're not studying that. And you're not studying a successful model of somebody putting butts in seats. And that's problematic. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's real elitist, I think. Um, and so I'm, I'm not here for that. I'm here to dismantle that as much as I possibly can. And my other big battle is in um, with conservatory programs. I think that we are training how, how a lot of these programs across this nation are not making enough space for what the future of this industry is going to look like and what the future of this country is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, they are pushing a lot of old um, supremacy down these kids' throats. And I'm, I'm not here for that either. I had a conversation with casting directors a few years ago 
this is early on in my writing trajectory. And I, um, I remember them saying that they know all the, the, they know all these great actors of color. They know all the great actors of color, which I thought was ridiculous. <laughs> but they also said to me, like, several, there's a list, like, because there's like a list. But there's also, and this is not. I, I, I work with a lot of casting directors who really get it and who really listen to me, and, and you know, so I've, I've built a good relationship with a lot of casting directors out here in New York, you know. But again, I've heard crazy things in the past. Um, another was that, you know, well, they just don't know how to handle like these. Poor, these artists of color, you know, they just don't know how to handle this material. And I go, you know what? It is one thing to say that you can't find talent because you're not actively looking for it or find, or you mm-hmm. know, you're not actually doing a job of going out and seeing theater outside of like mainstream, broad, off Broadway market. Right? Why would that be the only place that you're looking for new talent? That's ridiculous. Um, you should be going off off Broadway. You should be going up to Harlem. You should be going down to Brooklyn. Right. Like, what, what's the go out into your regions? Get out, find out who's out, doing it. Get out there. Um, but the other thing is um, that these artists of color, and it's not just black artists. But a lot of times in these programs, everybody is playing the every man. The every man is white. Mm-hmm. The every man is white. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote this play for uh, anybody can do. I go, but can anybody do it? Or did you write it specifically for a particular race of people? And you're just saying you're going to let anybody step into it, which is fine. If that's how you want to cast. But you're not writing it from their vernacular. That's exactly You're not writing it from their cultural, mm-hmm. you know, dialect. And so they're going to either Or even the... Even the vocabulary, even the language. Nothing. You're not writing it in any kind of way that makes sense to how they approach language. Mm-hmm. And there, but we go, you know, oh, but they just weren't good. They just aren't trained. They just don't know how to attack the text. And you're like, what text? Like, how about putting, letting, when black people take on a role, for instance, don't ask them to play white. Right. Once they start to play a role, they're gonna let, play, it be, let it be. Let who that they inform who their character is. Let that inform is. who their character is going to be. And if you say you've written a play where you don't care how the casting goes, if it's, it's wide open, because I'm asking. Also, I'm asking my fellow playwrights to be very specific. When I write a white woman, it's specific. I know exactly mm-hmm. what that white woman sounds like. She's a white woman. She's not anybody else. And when somebody <laughs> tries to put another person on, I go, No, that's not who that is. That's a white woman. I know exactly who this woman is and how she speaks and what how she relates to the rest of this community. If you if you she can't be washed into something else, and neither can any of my black characters. I know who I'm writing. If you, if I'm intentionally going, this can be black or Latina. It's because there's a specific black and Latina where that where that culture merges, mm-hmm. where they can interchange this language. Yeah. So you have to really know the people you're writing. Otherwise, be open to people bringing themselves to the work. You know. But what we can't do is ask you, Latina girl. You need to sound like a white woman from. Wherever yeah. and she has never been. I'm a director by trade. I mean, I'll call directors out on that. You like, know. if you're gonna if you're gonna do this, you need to respect the backgrounds and the history of the people that you are bringing That's into right. the room and let them speak to their roles. Because just casting yeah. some person to be your diversity check mark is not going it's to not speak to. And that's why we have problems building audiences. That's right. All right. Yeah. So, very last question. Great. Um, we are building a community cultural canon um, mm-hmm. for the Black Theater canon. Right. If there is one play that you think needs to be in the community Black Theater canon, what would it be? I mean, is it like, are we talking about a new play or a we play are, that... Any, so on the website, there's about to be like a page that any young person looking at this podcast can go say, what plays do I need to be reading mm-hmm. to understand my place in this world of theater? Okay. What is that? I, I mean, that's that's hard. There's a, a million. I, there's not one, but uh, one I will just throw into the mix for now is um, Pearl Clegg, Bourbon at the Border. Mm-hmm. 
just think is relevant, and I don't think people know it very well. They know some of mm-hmm. her other work, and they don't know that one as much. And uh, and I think it's pretty. It speaks to a trauma that we don't discuss. Um, and so I think, yeah, bourbon at the border, proclet. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time today, um, especially in front of an audience tonight. So thank you for your time. We appreciate you. This is the Black Theater History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Our music is by Kaya Caterhurst from the album Nine Pin, which can be found on iTunes and wherever else fine music is sold. Special shout-outs for this episode go to Story Airs for being amazing and wonderful, and to Signature Theatre for providing us space to record this dialogue. The Black Theatre History Podcast is produced with the support of Art 26201, which is dedicated to the promotion of public and community art in Buchanan, West Virginia, and works to promote the creative and inspirational opportunities in their community. If you like what we're doing here at the Black Theatre History Podcast and want to support our work, you can make a donation to the podcast or learn about sponsorship and episode commissions at www.blacktheaterhistory.com. While you're there, you can check out the article Dominique wrote about her second grade teacher. And listeners, you also make this podcast possible. Make sure to subscribe to the Black Theater History Podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you would, please take a moment to write a review of the Black Theater History Podcast. As more people get involved, Apple will share the podcast with the folks who want to learn about it. And if you know someone who will dig what we do and who's not listening yet, please share this podcast with them. We're all in this together. We've got a lot more to learn. Thanks for listening, friends. Peace. My God is here.